David Flaherty, Marketing Director for Washington Wine, and this is Somlight. Somlight is a conversation series where we talk to some of our favorite wine pros from around the country, talk a little bit of shop, but more importantly, find out what makes them human and what makes them tick. I'm super excited today to welcome to the show, Jennifer Estevez. Jen is the founder and CEO of Ohm Vino, a company which specializes in PR, marketing, brand development, and strategic consulting for a range of clients, including a number of esteemed wineries and restaurants. At the age of 20, she discovered her passion for wine hospitality when she was on the opening team at the Ritz-Carlton at Dove Mountain in Arizona. And from there, she moved to San Francisco, where she worked her way up through some top restaurants and wine bars such as Press Club, RN74, Epic Steak, Michael Mina, Keiko Anab Hill, and Sushi Hashiri. Additionally, she's worked in wine sales, created award-winning beverage lists, and is also an advanced yoga instructor and a black belt in Taekwondo. Jen, it's awesome to see you. How are you and where are you? I'm so great. Thank you for asking. I'm currently in San Francisco at my office space in Jackson Square. So you've studied yoga and you've studied Taekwondo. So that being said, how annoying is bad posture to you? Oh, it's terrible. I look at people all the time and I like just sit there and I'm like, man, their right shoulder is out of alignment. They need to stop that. How can I help them? 100%. You know, open your heart. It's open important. The heart. Open the heart. Have you ever had to use your Taekwondo skills in real life? And have you ever had to use your yoga skills in real life? I use my yoga skills practically every day to keep myself sane and balanced as a business person. It's very important. Um, I also had a lower back injury that has acted up occasionally over the last few years. And so I use yoga to keep that in check. Taekwondo, unfortunately, I have had to use here in San Francisco before. I was once attacked on the street by a gentleman who came up behind me and tried to just grab a handful. And he successfully got a back fist to the face and uh, was not happy about it and ran away screaming. So, you know, these things serve a purpose. I encourage everybody to train in martial arts. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I'm glad you were able to get out of that situation. So let's get back in time a little bit. You know, at a certain point in your career, you're working at some top restaurants in San Francisco. At some point along the way, you decide that you want to leave it all and go into a business for yourself. Talk a little bit about that decision process and when you finally made the leap to go, I'm going out on my own. My decision to strike out on my own really started when I was in sales. I was struggling as a salesperson because some companies, I like the company I work with a lot, but some companies, you know, they just kind of throw you into it. They're like, you have a salesperson attitude. So here's some training materials and just go sell wine. And, you know, I was trying to figure out ways to connect with people in the market when it was a little bit of a slower time economically. And I decided to offer people, you know, just services to get them to have placements of the wines that I was trying to push. I would, you know, offer to just consult on their wine list, you know, tweak their numbers, just review everything that they had um, going on with their programs and just offer suggestions. And then in exchange, just get placements for that. I would, you know, edit their wine list for errors, typos, whatever. And I created a lot of great relationships like that to the point where I started having people, you know, come to me for small projects and just saying, oh, you know, you did this. Can you do this now? <laughs> and just asking me to take on more work. I just liked the idea of working for myself because I thought it would give me more time. And, you know, I don't know that that's true, but it definitely gave me more autonomy. And so I eventually decided to quit my sales job 
And I found some really great um, collaborators, most of which were my old accounts from my sales days to you know, work with me on both building my business in terms of marketing and in terms of consulting. So it was, a, it was great. Now, one thing I love about restaurant people and like, you know, looking at your background is you're really like exposed and get to work with some incredible minds. People that are super passionate about, you know, hospitality and service and so many things. And then you kind of get to like watch them in action. What did you kind of take away from some of the, the people that you most admired working with and, and for that you carried into your own business? Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, working at RN74 and working for Amina Group in general, I think was really eye-opening. I think that there was a lot of camaraderie and culture there that was really helpful, especially related to, you know, pushing each other to learn more about wine and food. And I started RN74 when Raj Parr was there. And although he wasn't there for long, he's still a friend of mine now. And I've learned a lot just from, you know, watching how he executed his goals in terms of his career dreams. And, you know, I always remember when I was there, just the the tips and tricks that I was taught by him in terms of like, you know, always keeping a notebook, you know, how to think about like just sniffing and, you know, examining different like fruits and herbs and things like that and tying it into wine so you can cook better, so you can taste wine better, all those things. And so, yeah, listening and learning from a lot of those people was really great. I think that also when I worked at Fritz Carlton, that was a really eye-opening experience for me. I was 21. And again, it was just my first foray into more serious food and beverage culture, but they had really great culture overall. And it's something that I've taken with me into my business. What they used to say, which was really impactful was we are ladies and gentlemen serving ladies and gentlemen. And so that meant that we as employees were treated equally to the guests and our experience was also prioritized, which I think in my past experiences and in many others following it was not the case. And I think that in order to build, you know, healthy work culture and encourage people to learn and grow, I think that's really important. I mean, that's interesting. That's almost like empowering your employees to see themselves that way too. You know, Mm -hmm. like so much of it's like we are, you know, in restaurants, you're in service. And I think people often do kind of take that as like, I'm serving you in kind of like a menial, like lesser than position. And then they almost feel that way themselves, but like, it doesn't affect the service. In fact, you probably give a lot better service when you're kind of like proud of yourself and like your craft and your, your art in a way and, and your, your skills. Yeah. Engaged employees create engaged guests like every single time. That's something that's really important. And that was again, another thing that I learned from Ritz Carlton. And like, I treat my employees that way now. I make sure that their happiness and their success is prioritized and always give them opportunities to grow within the business, to learn something new. You know, when I was at RN74 or when I was at the Mina Group, there was always great opportunities to learn about food and beverage. And then, you know, I started teaching myself because I realized how important that was to keeping me interested and positive and happy and not just doing the job, you know when you constructively ask for feedback from your staff, your employees, your partners, whatever it is, you know, you will receive that feedback and you learn how you can improve and you have more eyes on how you can improve your culture, your processes, whatever it is. And your business becomes more efficient very naturally. I mean, you're like, what, like four or five years in now, right? Like, you, you know, you've made a leap and Omvino is, I think in its fourth year, fifth year now that's a long time in, in like entrepreneurial days. I mean, I'm sure the learning curve has been insane in in one year, let alone four or five. Like 
when you look back now and see yourself at the start of this four or five years ago, what advice would you give yourself, you know, with knowing what you know now? I think that in the beginning and even just a few years ago, I would have given myself the advice to ask for what you're worth more and compromise that less because there were so many times that I was just in the beginning, you know, I'm like, it's okay. You know, we're newer. It's fine. We really want to work with these guys. Let's do this. And, you know, we would just discount our prices for people and work with people that were friends, which is great. And I think it's still important to do that. And we still do do that, but it's also really important to ask for what you're worth because especially if you have a company that is mission-driven, you have a good culture, you have to ask for the resources you need in order to protect your business, yourself, and to be able to amplify your message more in the world so you can translate that and help more people, work with more people, all those things. And so in the beginning, I just bootstrapped. You know, I got got into that startup culture with Palette Club, which is the wine club app that I'm also a co-founder in. And I did that with Omvino in the beginning for the first few years, you know, it's a good lesson and it keeps you humble, but also then you have to step up and prioritize stepping into your power and asking for what you're worth in a way that allows you to grow your business and scale and also have quality of life. And it's really important to do that. Now, life moves fast, <laughs> especially like the more responsibility you have on your plate, you know, and before you know it, weeks <laughs> are going by and like you're getting dragged behind the boat. I mean, that's that's a constant in hospitality and many jobs, but yes. all that day-to-day madness with all that you're juggling, how do you make time to, to look ahead? And, and then how important is that for you? It's really important. I think that you can learn from the past. You need to stay grounded in the present and you also need to always be looking towards the future. And it's just like, how do you keep yourself in all of those different directions, doing something constructive, you know, I think that it's for me taking time to meditate and journal and do all that stuff helps me to be in the space where I'm like observing being present and then also thinking forward. And I think that's really how you find success in business because you have to keep all of those things in mind. Are you intentional about that? Are you like, you know, in my calendar, it's like, this is my like, stop everything, put a cork in the, the, the flood of things coming at me and then take time for myself and like dream and look ahead. Is that something that you like schedule or like just on a nuts and bolts level? Like, how do you, how do you carve out time for that? I try to, you know, it's really hard because every day looks different. And some days I'm like, yes, today I'm going to meditate, journal, yoga, breath work. Yeah. I say that every day. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm going to meditate every day. That just, it's the first (laughs) thing to go. Yeah, totally. And so I try not to compromise that. And if I can't do it in like my set schedule, I'll just find some time in my day to do it, even if it's for like a little bit less time. But in terms of dreaming and being intentional with that, like when I journal, I try to at least give, you know, a small, like I I write out basically a couple intentions for the day. And then I try to think about consistently, you know, what my goals are. Like I'll take every couple of months, I'll take some time and like write down, like, what are my goals for the future? And what were my goals that I had previously? And what have I done with these? And what have I not done and why? And just try to hold myself accountable. I think when you write things down, whether that's like a journal or like a post-it note, something, you know, build a vision board, um, just have some physical reminder of what your goals are. It is helpful for accountability. You're just like, oh yeah, I wrote that. Was I just being impulsive or, (laughs) you know, let me think about that. Why did I want to do that? Okay. Maybe I'll call myself back. That. Like that kind of reminds me of like New Year's resolutions. 
and like I just completely stopped writing them down because like I just would go back and revisit and be like didn't do that one didn't do that one (laughs) yeah no you're right I mean it's I mean it's what the law of attraction they say which kind of got very trendy there a few years ago but there is something to that where it's like if you're going to crystallize the vision and then actually say it out loud and actually say it to somebody or write it down then there is some sort of accountability because you've put it out there what are some of your intentions now like what are, what are you looking looking to do in the next year two years three years so i'm manifesting some good stuff i'm excited about it so one of the i'm working on right now is you know i've become a vegan about four years ago now And I really want to move more into working with plant-based companies. And I've also been doing more business advisory for small emerging brands and startups because I've had that experience between Ombino, Palette Club, and just other brands that we've worked with. And I love doing that. I love getting entrepreneurs to the point where, you know, pushing you out of the nest and you're growing. Like, that's what I love doing. It makes me really happy because I feel like entrepreneurship is a vessel for change. And so what I've been working on, on top of, you know, on top of Palette Club and whatever else is going on in the world, I've been working on, on a accelerator program and putting together curriculum for that for plant-based consumer packaged goods, because I think that alternative proteins, alternative dairies, all those things, it's a really hot market segment. And so just want to help those types of businesses grow because they're chef-based businesses often, and those people don't know how to articulate their chef skills into the business world. And, you know, it's kind of similar to what we do with wine. You know, a lot of people who are in the wine world, you know, with when we work with them with Ombino, don't know how to articulate their message, their goals into the world in a way that returns their investment in terms of sales or mail, mailing list signups, whatever it is they're looking to prioritize. So that's what I'm doing. That's, you actually <laughs> kind of read my mind there. Like that's a perfect lead in because I'm going to solicit some free advice from you right now. <laughs> I'm here for it. Which, you know, we have a lot of wineries that would be curious to hear your thoughts on that. So, you know, what are some of the biggest mistakes wineries are making today in terms of approaching their marketing messages they're using, it, whatever. And then what is a few tips that you'd have for them uh, to help up their game? For many wineries, I think that with their marketing, it's too homogenous. You know, people will post like a happy sangria Friday picture. And if I see one of those pictures again, it just, it just makes me want to, I just can't, those drive me nuts. I hate those. Oh, you mean like Friday, like happy Friday? Yeah. It's like, come on, right? Two seconds, write a sentence that is authentic to you. If you can't do that, somebody else needs to be doing your marketing for you, or you just shouldn't be doing it because I don't think it's helpful for you. My personal opinion. Even if you're just posting a picture of like your vineyard and saying, this is our vineyard on a Friday, this is much better than posting generic stuff. So don't be generic, be authentic. I think that that's the biggest thing that wineries and, you know, food and beverage businesses in general should, you know, take to heart in terms of their marketing. What is your authentic voice and how can you, you know, put your story into visual like aesthetic and writing? And that's really what we work with brands to do. It's so much fun to do that too, just to understand, you know, right now we're working, for example, with Handley Sellers in Mendocino. And, you know, this is a second generation um, woman owned winery. And so this is Lulu Handley stepping into her mother's shoes. And we're helping her to tell the story of what that looked like. How did she learn about, you know, wine with her mom? How is this so integral to her life? How is this relevant to marketing and why should people care? 
and just figuring out that that who, what, where, and why for everybody's brand. That's what you have to do. And you have to think about it that way. You know, like what makes you authentic when you're selling a bottle of wine at a restaurant, you know, what's the difference between a DRC and like a Sicilian bottle of red for 30 bucks? You know, it's the story, it's the farming, it's the land. And you have to be able to tell that. Otherwise, what quantifies the price tag? What interests people in buying a rent? I mean, that's kind of in a way like what Psalms do by trade, right? Like they, they are the ones that read the eight page text sheets and, you know, and every wine they go and they look at the website. Maybe they've even gone to that vineyard and they've met the people. Mm-hmm. They're the ones that have to like instantly at the table in like 30 seconds decide yeah. what little nuggets am I going to tell this person that's going to give context for what they're drinking and get them excited mm-hmm. about what they're drinking. Is that something that like you kind of came to naturally and now in your job, you're like, well, I know how to do that. That's why we started on vino. That's really the thing. You know, when I was working at Sushi Hashiri, I was doing a full consultation for them. I was working on their beverage program. I got to build a $200,000 beverage program with old burgundies and all the fun things that Psalms like dream about. <laughs> and I ended up helping them to strategize operations, everything else. And then the task of interviewing PR and marketing firms got handed to me. And I just had people coming in and trying to charge me $9,000 for a 45 seat restaurant, had no idea how to speak to Burgundy and had no idea how to talk about Kaiseki, sushi, any of these things. And I'm like, well, tell me, why am I paying you $9,000? And, you know, it's just one of those things that I think that that's a lot of the, a lot of the marketing firms where they really miss the mark while they maybe understand technical marketing. They don't understand the storytelling aspect like sommeliers do, you know, and all of my team are sommeliers. And we all love that we get to turn storytelling into a digital format instead of just doing it table side. And it's just something that's really critical for us. But What's really fun about our team too, is even though we're still marketing professionals and we don't really need to do it, we go and work the floor sometimes too, just to keep ourselves sharp and keep that, you know, customer interaction portion of our brain working, you know, keep our finger on the pulse of what's happening in the consumer world. So that's awesome. That's one thing I've always admired about, like, you know, Psalms with a lot of experience is that you can airdrop into another restaurant, just start working the floor. Cause like, for me, that would just be terrifying. I'd be like... I don't know the menu, I don't know the wine list, I don't know where the dish pit is, and I'm working. Like, I don't know. That's that's pretty scary. If you're an actor, um, it's just improvisation. It's the same thing. <laughs> fake it till you make it. I mean, fake it till you make it's a real thing. Well, I mean, real. if you know the wines, you just figure out the service and smile and be polite and you'll figure it out. Yeah. That's that's what yeah. I do. <laughs> I just make it look smooth. That's it. That's make it. it look smooth. Hashtag make it smooth, people. All right, let, let's switch gears because. One of the things that you're really, really big on and is is so important right now and is like everyone, so many people are coming to realize now is work-life balance. And it's so elusive, that chase. I mean, everybody talks about it. And I'm not saying that you've mastered it. I wouldn't <laughs> either. <laughs> but, you know, you've made some serious progress. Mm-hmm. Why is the hospitality world, the beverage world, and the demands that it puts on people so notoriously tough? to find balance? What's wrong with this world that, that we work well, in? I think there's many things that contribute to it. I think one of the big things is that in the food and beverage industry, whether we're in the front of the back of the house, there's often this desire to please people and to be of service. And sometimes we forget to be of service to ourselves. 
and to prioritize our own needs and care and all those things above like the experience of others. And I think that that translates into a lot of other aspects of life. And so remembering that you have to be of service to yourself before you can be of service to other people as well. And to put self-care first is something that I think our industry has historically not prioritized. And the tide is turning. The tide is changing here. I had such a great conversation, you know, yesterday on a Zoom panel with Bobby Stuckey, uh, Jesse Cool, Kim Alter, Jack Mason, some really incredible humans, just about the changes in the food and beverage industry and how we can implement these changes. And historically, we put the guest experience first. But like I said in the beginning, just like I went to Ritz Carlton, putting your employee experience first can actually be much more rewarding and much more profitable. And I think a lot of times food and beverage culture is glamorized as, you know, kind of like rock star culture with, you know, chefs and sommeliers just living these party lives. And while that's fun for a little bit, it's definitely not sustainable and it's not really good for business and practical. And employees in the hospitality industry need to have the same benefits and experiences that employees in other industries have. And they need to also be able to have that support and that healthy culture in order to, you know, nurture their existence, to make it more sustainable, to make it better. Um, And that starts by, again, prioritizing and making the experience for the employees a higher item on the totem pole. You know, we have to just make sure that people have the opportunity to take time off if they need it. Sometimes in the food and beverage culture, it's like glamorized. Oh, you know, I work four doubles this week. What about you? Yeah, I'm on on day 37. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. I'm like, you know, I've had a month with no days off. And it's like those things were things that I would hear consistently in the food and beverage industry. And it's just, it's not healthy to have that type of competitive culture. And it's, you know, something where we need to have benefits. We need to have opportunities for employees to learn. And there's such high turnover rates right now, because I think after the pandemic, people are realizing, oh, these are all the things that I was missing. I got to stay home and spend time with my family and <laughs> take some time and go be in nature. Now they, they know and they're asking for what they're worth in a different way. And so I think that the restaurateurs that are going to be successful in this time and the way that the culture is going to look like, you know, as things progress is the experience of the employees will be prioritized and equality will be prioritized. We had lots of fun shakeups with regards to that over the last year as well. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, those are the people that do it. The people you mentioned, I mean, those are like leading lights in our industry, but like, that's going to take time. And like, that's going to be some substantial overhaul of the way this industry is set up. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, let's hope we get there, but that's years away. Like what about for yourself? Right. Let's say that you work in a place that it's a great place. You know, the pay is decent, like the work's good, but it's, it's an intense environment. Like what ownership can you as an individual though, take over this journey and make sure that you are getting on a, on a path to like greater self-care and balance. You have to prioritize your own experience. And I think that again, when you're in a position of power and leadership, you have to prioritize others' experiences and your own. That's hard. But when you're, you know, in a place where you're working more communally and you're not in a leadership space, you know, you should prioritize learning because one, that's good for your mentality. Learn something, do something that's outside of your work that enriches your life take care of your body. You only get one (laughs) and, you know, just make sure that you're taking care of your health and in your mind, like those two things, body and mind need to be aligned in order for you to be able to be your best self in the world. So taking care of that is, is really what you need to do. And if you're in a job that isn't allowing you to prioritize that in a way that's healthy, 
maybe you should reconsider the job. If it's challenging, you know, then that's great. If you're learning something from it, it's good. Stick around. But if it's like hard for no reason, why are you there? Find something that speaks to you. Are there small things that you can do every day? And like, this is like habitual. People have spent years. I mean, and this is in any industry, right? That's demanding. Like you've spent years kind of developing this calcified, you know, set of habits that are, are not healthy. I heard this great quote today. It was, it was something, I'm going to butcher it, but it was something like what we do with our days is what we do with our life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, holy crap, that's, that's so profound. Cause like, that's really what your life is, is, is a collection of these daily habits. So are there things that you do every day, be they small that you think have big return in, in, in the long run? Yeah. Meditation. I definitely would not have gotten through the pandemic uh, as a sane human if it were not for developing a better meditation habit. And, you know, in the beginning, even if that's like, I've added on other things to my meditation habits. I do breath work, I do yoga, and those things help me to just clear my mind. But in the beginning, when you're starting, even if it's just for five minutes, sit down and make yourself close your eyes and think about something positive or just clear your brain. We have so much cross chatter and like, you know, so much, just like so many hamsters spinning in their wheels in our brain. Sometimes turning your brain off for five minutes and just even like just stopping and pausing and feeling gratitude is really helpful. And that's proven by science. It's not just, you know, me saying that also focusing on your breath for five minutes. If you have trouble, just clearing your mind, it can really change the way that you are able to emotionally process things on a chemical level. And I think that that's really important. Because when your mind is clear, you can make better decisions on everything else. You're less reactive. You're less emotional. Things are not as hard. Now for you, like overall, like I know you went through a journey when you were transitioning from restaurants into your business where you hit sort of like your limit and then you had to kind of like find this. Can you talk about that point in your life and, and, and how you moved through that? Yeah, that was a fun one. I was transitioning through Ombino. I mean, I was, I was in Omvino full-time and I was working on Palette Club and I was, you know, just growing the business and sitting for my master's sommelier exam. Like just thinking about all these things right now, it's not that I'm not busy, but it just makes my head hurt. And I was just doing so much for all of these things and thinking that it was, again, I was like glamorizing being busy. And I was totally living a great rock star lifestyle. I was traveling all over the world and doing all this stuff. But, you know, I had a nice partner at home that I wasn't really paying attention to as much as I should have been. And I was just kind of all over the world, like thinking about myself. And I was not thinking about myself in the ways that mattered. And it really burnt me out. Like I wasn't sleeping enough. I wasn't taking enough time for self-care and balance. And like, it was just, you know, it was not great. And I just hit this point where when I passed my advanced exam, I remember being burnt out then. And that was like, right when I was starting on, you know, and then going into my master's on exam the second time, I was like, why am I doing this? I don't even have enough energy to be doing this right. I was so tired. And so, you know, I took a trip with my business partner and we went to Scotland and <laughs> unwound in Scotland for a few days. And I was like, I need to do something. I need to take a month off. I need to do this. <laughs> and we decided at that point that we were going to make that, you know, a part of our company culture to allow people to have more extended time off. And it's always been a part of our company culture to travel and to try to enrich yourself through travel and work abroad. As long as you get your deadlines done, whatever you can be, you can be sitting on the beach with like a pina colada. I don't care as long as your work is done on time. 
and there's no typos because you're drunk, you know, but, um, (laughs) I, I took like a month, I guess it was a month and a half actually to be in India to go do my yoga teacher training. And my, my business partner subsequently took, you know, a month ish off to go sit for a master song another time. You know, I just had to sit there and make myself stop and sit down and prioritize what was really happening in my life. Because what did it matter if I was making money hand over fist, if I wasn't happy, what did it matter if I was making money and, you know, becoming successful, if I was burnt out and miserable and (laughs) tired all the time, you know, like, what was I doing that for? For what? For my ego? Cool. And so I realized when I sat down and like, I had that month in India to just kind of sit with myself and do yoga and meditate and all those things that have now become my habits that I implement daily for the most part, you know, I just had to to think about, you know, what was important for me and my body, my health, my wellness, and what was more just serving my ego and just begin that process of clearing it all out so I could live a better life and have a better business and better like people and relationships in my life. That's what that looked like. And I did not sit for my master's on exam again. I think that was a little too much. So have you, have you sat since, or you decided that's not for you right now? No. Or I think that it's not for me. I support the court of master sommeliers. I'm excited for all the changes they're making and hope it's successful. But I think that for me, I realized over the course of my wine journey, that wine is as much my passion as businesses. And so I just apply myself more fully to my business. I felt like I wasn't doing justice to my business, trying to do both in that way, especially at that time. And maybe I'll change my mind later and I'll want to go back, but that is not right now. <laughs> now for business, like I, I've heard you talk about, you know, managing employees and we, we just talked about that a little bit. I've heard you talk about money raising as well. And like the world of money raising for your company and obviously client work and all that, like, what, what's the, what's the, the parts of your business that you most enjoy and what's the parts of your business that are, that are most challenging for you? I think the parts of my business that I most enjoy are the things where I get to create stuff, where I get to ideate and just do like strategy sessions with new businesses where I get to just like think creatively and reflexively and be like, okay, here's the problem. Like I love creative problem solving. That is so much fun for me. Fundraising is also fun because it's just like a more complicated logistical form of sales and also creative problem solving. So I really enjoyed that. I enjoyed that whole experience through Pilot Club and through like these other companies that I've assisted with that whole process. And the things that drive me nuts, that's a good question. What really just, you know, sometimes I think that having to try to think about the big picture and also manage small details and logistics, like checking in on project management, like checking in on people's tasks, like, why didn't you get this done? You know, you need to get this done. (laughs) I sent you reminders about this, just having to do like small minutia, you know, but it's still all of it's fine. You know, it's a part of the process, but I'm learning to delegate better. So I have to do less of the things that are not within my area of, you know, excellence and, you know, the things that are just like, I'm good at, but I have to do, I'm trying to give all of those away. That's, that's what I feel is one of the secrets to having a successful business. So you, you mentioned like the, the kind of the thrill of sales and like some people really like that. Yeah. And, um, you know, bring it back to wineries. Like I've heard a lot of winemakers say like making wine's easy. Anybody can make wine. It's the selling of the wine. That's hard. Mm-hmm. 
I think there's a lot to that, you know, the travel and the different markets and distributors and all that. Like, what do you think, like, what would you advise a winery though, in terms of like, these are a few things to focus on and how to sell more wine. I know that's a very general question, mm -hmm. but like, is there anything that you would tell them about how to better sell their wine? Yeah, I think it goes back into what we were talking about earlier. You know, it's all about owning your story. You know, how are you going to differentiate your product in the market? Whether you're a big brand or a small brand, you know, bigger brands, if they're just going for volume, sure, that process looks a little bit different. But for brands with heart and soul and, you know, a story to tell, you got to tell that story. Whatever way that is, you know, I think the online market right now is the place to do it. Because I think that, you know, even the restaurants are coming back, the online like online purchasing of wine has been revolutionized, especially over the last year and prioritized and becoming ingrained as part of the consumer experience. So owning your story, how do you do your, your like one minute pitch? How do you talk about your brand and hit the important parts of what makes your brand different in like one to five minutes? You can't do that. You need to rethink how you're selling your product because it's harder for consumers to understand. If you can't understand your product and how to tell your story, why are the consumers going to? So I think that's really important to think about. 100%. All right, let's do some rapid fire questions. Yes. What Halloween costume are you most proud of? That's a great <laughs> question. Oh man. I normally have so bad. I dressed up as Hunter S. Thompson one time. That was a really messy Halloween. Thankfully there's not pictures of that anymore. <laughs> yeah. um, if, if we had to play a board game right now, which one would it be? Hmm, probably chess. That's my favorite. I like getting intellectual on things. <laughs> nice. What is a chore that you don't mind doing? I like vacuuming. I find that really soothing for some reason. As somebody that has not vacuumed in a very long time, I'm embarrassed to admit, when was the last time you vacuumed? Uh, like yesterday morning. I tried to- Really? Yeah, I try oh, to God. do, well, I guess- not yesterday morning, yesterday evening. I try to do little bits like every like- You have pets though? No. You don't, and you still vacuum a lot. <laughs> oh man, now I feel really bad. Yeah, anyone I know that like, vacuums a lot, they're like the dog hair everywhere. And I'm like, oh, I don't have a dog, so. Mm -hmm. No, I, I, guess just like to, I just like to do little bits of it like every like couple days. So it's not like me vacuuming the whole house like every week or something. You just do like a five by five square, just a couple quick minutes get your vacuum fixed. Habit stacking. I'm like sitting there, I'm like, I'm waiting for my tea to steep. What can I do in the meantime that helps my house go clean? Five minutes. That's it. I'm gonna vacuum this square. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> what is something that you did once that you'll never do again? How incriminating do I want to get with <laughs> I know I was like, do you want to give that answer? Or like, um, I will never ever again go to the Jameson Bartenders Bowl. That was a lot of whiskey at a short span of time. And it was I was not responsible enough with that that decision making there. That just sounds bad. The, the Jameson bar, bartenders ball. The next day. Yep. Yeah, nothing good happens at the Jameson Bartenders Ball. Nope. Nope. All bad. What is the last picture you took on your phone and will you show us? Where is my phone? I think the last picture I took on my phone, I don't know where my phone is right now. Oh, there it is, hold on. Hmm. <laughs> oh, no, the last picture I took on my phone is cute. It's, um, I went to an ecstatic dance party with some friends in LA while I was there. <laughs> are there mustaches drawn on those people or was the, is that- No, those are, those are the real stashes. They're, oh yeah. Yeah. They're, they're a fun bunch. I adore them. 
so yeah, that was it. I did that on LA. It was an ecstatic dance ceremony for the full moon. It's trying to bring in all the, the full moon vibes. What's an, ex- that's the better question. What's an ecstatic dance ceremony? Uh, basically you just listen to music and everybody dances however they want to dance in like a big outdoor area. It was like on the beach and it was a uh, silent disco style. So I had headphones. It was like crazy tribal trance music. I was like, all right, I'm here. You had your own music and everybody had their own music? Everybody had. So if you were walking by as an observer, there was no music. Yeah. So you just see a bunch of people dancing. <laughs> like the watching the videos, we took some videos and the videos were hilarious because there was no music to the videos. But, you know, we were all dancing like crazy people. And so if you have the headphones on and everybody can, everybody's listening to the same thing. But yeah, no music from the observer's point of view. Oh man, I love it. The ecstatic dance party with, with, with headphones. It's great. You just get I love whatever it. you want. Loosens you can do that every day, people, in your house for five minutes in the morning. Yeah. I mean, that, that might be as good as meditation. I think it is. I think dance is totally a form of meditation. So that's, yeah. that's another tip for you guys. There you go. You put that on your, put that on your client list. Like we're going to help you guys come up with your ecstatic dance parties every day. What is your go-to takeout or delivery order? That's a hard one. <laughs> Probably Thai food. Thai food or, or vegan breakfast burritos are my favorite takeout things. What's your Thai food order? Uh, Pad Pi Mao or papaya salad, just depending on how hungry I am. Done. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Here's one from my nine-year-old son. So that, that's the caveat. Uh, it's, a, it's a would you rather. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you rather be eaten by a tiger or a shark? Oh, a tiger. My spirit animal is a tiger. So that's it. Oh, instantly. <laughs> that's your answer. Instant answer. That's- Not even a, I mean, getting eaten by a shark sounds pretty awful because you're probably in the water and there's something more vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just, give me, give me the tiger. <laughs> give me the tiger. I'm ready for it. It's fine. The, the shark might be done with you quicker though. Mm. Like it might, it might be over. doesn't matter no. to you. I don't you're like, in the water. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I don't, I don't like that idea for some reason, but it, I guess it doesn't really matter in the end. <laughs> but you like the idea of the shark, of the tiger. Yeah. Dude, the tiger is my spirit animal. I can tell you good stories about that too. If you want to talk about that. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, no, the tiger. So when I went to India, this was one of my things that happened while I was there that was life-changing. The tiger had always been something that like I kind of identified as my spirit animal in like more of a silly way, but I was like, okay, this is a sign. I went to go leave the, the ashram in India, like the first week that I was there. And I had this dog that like stopped me from running out like walking out of the gate, like the place where I was staying was like a five minute walk down the road in the dark. And uh, this dog was like running back and forth between the door. And I was like, what is it guy? And then an old man walks by the door or by like the gate and he goes, oh, there's a tiger. And I'm like, what? <laughs> and so I walk outside and I'm like, you know, I can't see anything. And I ask people to walk with me. And, um, you know, I walk up the path and the, the Asher manager who walked with us um, me and the other person who, who were at the the place up the street staying, you know, he was like talking about, you know, oh, there's no tiger, blah, blah. And so as we go to close the gate behind us, the tiger swipes at him and he runs back in screaming like a little girl. It was very gratifying. But yeah, I had to sit there and live with the fact that there was a tiger on the pathway to my ashram every day for five weeks. And if you've ever Googled how to live from a tiger attack or how to like, 
you know, you can't like do like what you do with a bear and just curl up on a ball, right? You have to be facing forward and facing the tiger because they don't attack things that are facing them. So every day I had to wow. walk by this thing and face the the tiger. <laughs> Did you, you just walked up the path. Just yeah, like- I just had to sit there and just be like constantly vigilant and looking, and it was just hilarious. So I'm already ready to be eaten by a tiger in my mind. So that one's that one's a You're yes like, for I, me. That's been but, um, Did you have your claws up? Were you like ready? Like, what keeps you up at night? My monkey brain. <laughs> Just thinking about things way too much, just like, you know, getting into unproductive thought cycles about whatever it is and just getting myself out of that. Like one of my favorite ways to describe it is like monkey brain and fantasy future planning. I'm like, but what if I need to do this tomorrow at this time? No, I don't need to be thinking about this before bed. (laughs) Like, what if this happens and then this? No, none of this is relevant. You know, I'll be sitting there brushing my teeth and I'm like, thinking about something that I have to do that's completely irrelevant like three days from now and I'm like no <laughs> just getting in the habit of like ending those thoughts before bed is is good but oh, good. yeah it, it that's the, the battle okay did you bring a pen and a piece of paper yes I got it I think you brought your notebook yeah. the notebook always with. there it is awesome that's it. okay we're gonna do the somlight drawing challenge oh god I'm gonna put 45 seconds on the clock okay and I want you to tell us about the wines of Santorini while drawing you on the path to the ashram with the tiger approaching you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. You have 45 seconds. Are you ready? I'm ready. Jen Estevez, the drawing challenge. Here we go. Go. So the wines of Santorini are really beautiful, high acid whites, and they have a lot of volcanic influence in the soil there. So lots of minerality, lots of smokiness, spiciness, really beautiful. I believe they use the basket style of training for the wines as well. And yeah, trying to think of some great producers. I'm actually really looking forward to going there and exploring more um, this year. So is that 45 seconds yet? I don't know if I can. No, you still have 12 seconds. I want to learn more. <laughs> I don't know what else I can teach you about Santorini while I'm trying to draw a tiger. Did you say, did you say the grape variety? Um, what is the grape variety in Santorini? I didn't pass my master's song exam. <laughs> a Sirtigo? Yes, yes, you're correct. I was like, I believe it's a Sirtigo. Thank God. Um, uh, some people say Astratico, but I don't, I always say a Sirtigo. I believe and, you. Just say it with confidence. All right, you're still working on it, which is okay. Because to... it was a complicated drawing. I'm really it's excited. Complicated. To see I just I didn't get that far. This is all I got. It's a... Oh, oh. <laughs> it, it's an up. It was an uphill walk. I see. And then was, yes. <laughs> I did. You put all the time in the tiger, so it, the person is completely forgettable. But let's see that tiger because the tiger looked pretty good. Oh, you got some. That's cool. Yeah, he looks good. He's got some stripes. <laughs> Yeah, it's got some shading. That's pretty good. All right, I'll give it to you. I'll take it. You pass. All right, last question. You've been to Washington. Uh, you've worked with a number of Washington wineries. But rolling back to like, you know, storytelling, what do you think Washington's story we, we should bring forward to people that are trade, media, consumers, so they understand what's happening here? Oh, man, there's so many great things that happen in Washington. So many incredible wineries. I think that one of the things that I want to see talked about more is just, you know, these wines are all, it's such a challenge to make wines in Washington, but 
you know, with the, the temperature like differences um, and the temperature differences between like summer and winter, like it's, it's really hard. And I think that people are just making incredible wines there and the wines are really stand out. Like they're making beautiful things, big, bold, rich wines. And there's a lot of heritage and a lot of people that have been doing this for a while now and bringing their story to light, I think with some of the more like historic growers is really important, but I think you guys do a great job of that. It just needs to continue. Yeah. How do you think like, you know, a trade person that might not understand Washington and your, your, how do, how do we differentiate our wines from say California's wines? Mm, I think that California is much more commercialized at this point in a lot of ways than Washington is, you know, Napa is all about like luxury and Sonoma is beginning to have, you know, a similar reputation. Like it's the California wine world. I think that Washington is all about authenticity and family ties. And there's just so many, that's not to say there's not bigger wineries out there, of course, but these people are, you know, doing it because they love the land. Like it's a struggle to make the wines there sometimes. And it's just, you know, the wines that come out of Washington are really incredible. Um, people are putting a lot of thought into biodynamic farming. And there's not some of the pressures like you have in California in terms of wildfires and a lot of those other things to, to that similar degree. So I think Washington is going to be a place to, uh, to look towards as global warming continues to shift as well. So, well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us. And, you know, you're such an inspiration to the industry and for so many of us that are looking for, for balance on a, on a constant basis. And, you, you know, I, I know no one's doing this hundred percent, but you've made some really great strides and it's, it's pretty dang inspiring. So keep that up. Thank you, Jen. Uh, thank you all for listening. This has been Somlight, and we'll catch you next time with some of our other favorite wine pros around the country. Um, thanks so much, Jen. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Always great to see you.